It's been said that every quilt tells a story, and it's so true. But I also believe every quilter has a story to tell. I wanted to hear about the people behind these wonderful quilts and thought you'd enjoy hearing about their lives also. Welcome to A Quilter's Life. I bet if you've been around quilting for the last few years, you've probably seen the quilting-themed comic, By the Yard, created by Jennifer Lopez. I know they always bring a smile to my face. Jennifer brings the silliness of our quilting lives out in her comics in a way that we can relate. And her humor is always good-hearted and kind. She doesn't just draw comics, but is also a quilter and a quilt pattern designer. Jennifer, thank you so much for being on A Quilter's Life. Well, thank you for having me, Paula. I'm really excited to be here. I was sorry to hear after we set up this originally at the beginning of the year, you got sick. So I am so happy to see you're doing better. Oh, thank you. Thanks for being patient. Uh-huh. I was so happy that you responded to Carolina's post in the Quilt Designers Facebook group. The Quilt Designers Facebook group has been a really great organization for me. There's a lot of, as the name would imply, a lot of quilt designers and people that make businesses via quilting through lots of other ways, too. I've gotten to interview several from that group, and everyone is so wonderful. Let's jump back to Jennifer, where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in Haverhill, Massachusetts, but I grew up through the high school years in Amherst, New Hampshire, which was a pretty quiet and quaint sort of typical New England town. So that was fun. And then later I went to college in Cambridge and then lived in Massachusetts ever since then. So that's how you ended up in Massachusetts. Did you have a special childhood memory? Well, it's kind of funny that you should say that because a special childhood memory I had was when I was nine, and it kind of eventually related to quilting. Uh, when I was nine, my parents took me to Mystic Seaport, Connecticut, and there was a museum there, and it had a dollhouse in it. It had a salt box-style dollhouse, and it was magical. It was really amazing, and when I got home, I asked my dad if he could make me a dollhouse. My dad could make anything. He built our house. He built a boat. He, he can build anything. And so asking him to build a dollhouse was no big deal. And so he built me this beautiful, also salt box style dollhouse. And it turns out my very first quilt that I ever made was only four by six inches. And it was a quilt for the dollhouse. <laughs> I didn't even realize it, that I was starting out my love of quilts way back then. But I just thought, you know, the dolls needed something for their beds. And I made it out of scraps that my mom had made a fabric wreath for the house. It was like all holly leaves and stuff. So it was a Christmas wreath. <laughs> Fun. <laughs> Other than quilting in your comics, did you have other employment? Yeah. So basically I made my career being a software developer and then a software development manager when I moved to Cambridge, it was to go to MIT, where I got a degree in engineering, became a software developer, and then eventually became a manager and all that stuff. I'd always worked on my comics on the side. Before I had a comic about quilting, I had a comic about 
being in school when I was in school. And then when I was in the workforce, I had a comic about the workforce. It was called BizTunes, and it ran in Worcester Magazine, which is the biggest independent newspaper in Massachusetts. At the time, it was relatively big, but newspapers have since dwindled in popularity. And I was in that for about three years. So basically, my comics were sort of drawing off of things that I had done in my life. And then my latest comic, which is called By the Yard, I ended up doing that about quilting because I was lonely for my comic. I had stopped working on the business comic a few years ago. And then by strange coincidence, I met somebody who was really into model trains. And I know you're thinking, well, what does that have to do with quilting, right? But the funny thing is, is that I found out that like his fanaticism for model trains was as fanatical as mine for quilting. And I noticed that we had a lot of the same habits. Like we started dating and what should we do this weekend? And I'll be like, well, there's a quilt show. So we go to that. And the next weekend when he's like, well, there's a train show. And we go to that. And I noticed that we were both like super fanatical about our hobbies. And I just thought that was really funny. So I started drawing a comic about that. That's how my comic strip sort of got started. Oh, fun. From where you were born and raised, was it that you went to college and that's how you moved to where you are now? Yeah, I just sort of stayed down in Massachusetts. Actually, I guess I didn't explain that fully. I very recently moved to Rhode Island from Massachusetts, but I've always sort of stayed in this New England area. Just, I literally moved a half a mile over the border. So <laughs> I still feel like I'm from Massachusetts, but I have to keep reminding myself, oh no, you live in Rhode Island now. My fifth grade state that I had to do a report on was Rhode Island. Well, I really enjoy living in Rhode Island. And one of the things I found out since living down here is people are very, very crafty in Rhode Island. There's a lot of makers. They make candles and pottery and woodworking and baskets and quilts and homemade yarn. So it's really been very exciting for me to learn about lots of other types of crafts besides just quilting. Sounds like you're out and about a lot of weekends exploring some of those. Oh, yeah. In New England, regardless of what New England state you're in, fall is a really big time for us. And there's a festival of some kind or another every day in the fall. So that's what we, me and train guy do is we try to go to all the festivals and meet other crafters. And of course, he also likes vintage trucks and vintage engines. And they all have those kinds of things at these fairs. It's a really great place to be if you're a creative type. Have fun. Is there anything about your family you wanted to share with us? Well, my parents were both born in Saugus, Massachusetts. And like I said about New England, we are makers. And there's a, an expression here, you know, Yankee ingenuity. People don't buy stuff. They make it. My dad didn't buy a boat. He built it. <laughs> you know, he didn't buy a house. He built it. And the same is true of my mom. She didn't buy clothes. She sewed them. She didn't buy sweaters. She knit them. So growing up with my parents, I learned woodworking from my dad. I learned sewing from my mom. Although she was not a quilter. She made clothing and curtains and things for the house. And I learned knitting and all kinds of things. And I got into all kinds of crafts when I was in high school. My friend and I, who was also very crafty, we would just decide to pick up a random hobby like we were made candles one weekend, and then some other time we went and bought glass cutters and glass, and we made stained glass. 
So my upbringing was very, very creative. And like I said, we really never bought anything. We made things. Wow. All the wonderful experiences you get. It was really fun. I think you just covered a couple of them, but besides quilting, what other crafts do you do or have you done? Well, besides quilting, the craft that I'm most engaged in is knitting and crocheting. That's kind of my sit on the couch and relax craft, whereas quilting is more of a purposeful, you know, go down to your studio and cut things out. And that's a big hobby. You know, you need a lot of space. You know, there's a lot of parts. But if you're just tired, you don't want to break out all the big guns. I like to sit on the couch and crochet things and knit things and sweaters or little decorations. Or I like to make those little stuffed animals that are crocheted. Right now I'm working on a little scarecrow. Very, very cute. But a couple of years ago, I was, was at a yarn store minding my own business, just trying to buy yarn. And there was a bunch of ladies there that were rug hooking. And I was immediately fascinated by this because it looked beautiful and colorful and really fun because you get that cool hook that you punch the fabric with and everything. So I started rug hooking and now I have tons and tons and tons of wool and a bunch of unfinished rug hooking projects too. And then of course, the stained glass I, that I did in high school when we moved to our new house, it had tons of windows. And I'm like, well, I got to make some stained glass for the windows. Those are like sort of my four hobbies, but uh, they're all fighting for time. Do you think any of your hobbies or crafts show up in your quilting? Oh, well, in my quilting. I was going to say in my comic that's about quilting. I do a lot of jokes about other hobbies, too, and by the art. I, I do a lot of knitting humor because I knit a lot. And there's jokes about people who are like knitters and quilters. You're mad at your quilt, so you're not going to work on it. So you'll work on your sweater, and then you get mad at your sweater, so then you work on your quilt. So I guess that's the closest I really come to the two hobbies intersecting. I'm picturing your comic where he says, are all these boxes filled with fabric? And you say, no, there's yarn in some of them. That's right. Yep. Like many of the By the Yard comics, I like to joke that they are ripped from the headlines of my life because that was a real joke that happened when Train Guy and I were moving from Massachusetts to Rhode Island. He made some comment about, like, oh, my God, are all these boxes fabric? And I literally said, no, some of them are yarn. And then I thought, that's a great comic. Then there's one that was for Train Guy specifically when I went over to his apartment and said, you told me you were done packing. All I see here are boxes that say trains on them. And I said, what about your clothes? And this is 100% true. He held up this tiny little plastic bag that was like a grocery bag. And he said, oh, I got my clothes right here. <laughs> so he had like 10 boxes of trains on this tiny bag of clothes. <laughs> so I made a comic about that too. By the Yard, in addition to being a fan favorite of quilters, it actually also runs in Model Railroader magazine. I published my train-related jokes in Model Railroader. Since I started doing that, I was really excited to see how many train and quilt couples there are out there. I'll get emails from one or the other saying, you know, I'm into model trains and my wife is into quilting. Or I even got one where the woman was into model trains and her husband was into quilting. So I think it's really fun because 
my thesis for why this happens so often is that creative people just tend to attract each other. And just as I was joking about how we were hobby fanatics and that's why we ended up getting together, I think a lot of people do that. Creative people only understand other creative people. It makes life fun. So who introduced you to quilting or how did you start to quilt? Well, it was very funny. The only quilts I ever made when I was young was the dollhouse quilts. I made a few, three or four, or something like that. Not a lot. Then my best friend from college was going to adopt a baby. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is a big deal. You know, you're becoming a parent. This is your first child. I really need a good gift. And my friend and I, we've been friends since college, which is forever. And we always make each other ridiculously crazy, over-the-top, elaborate, handmade gifts. And we've been doing it for years. And so I felt all this pressure, like, oh, she's adopting a baby. It, it has to be good. I felt like just needing the baby a sweater wouldn't be enough because, you know, the baby's going to outgrow it. I go, we need something that's more of a keepsake. And I was like, how about a quilt? But I had never made a quilt before for humans. You know, I'd only made them for the dolls. And so I kid you not, I went to the local fabric store, which was called The Fabric Place. It was a big fabric store in Massachusetts for many years. It's now out of business. But I went into their quilting section, which I never go in, because I used to just go into the garment section. I was really big into making my own clothes. I said, well, I want to make a quilt, but I don't know how. So I went to the book section. I fanned through this wire spinner rack, and I found this book that said, Log Cabin, Quilt in a Day. It was from the Eleanor Burns Quilt in a Day series. And I didn't know who Eleanor Burns was, and I didn't know she was into this quilt in a day thing. And the cover was really beautiful. And the cover had a picture of a vintage sewing machine, which was the Singer Red Eye. I think it's really like the Singer 66 or 99 or something like that, but it's commonly known as the Red Eye. And I have one of those that my grandmother had given me years ago. So I just like fell in love with the cover because of the beautiful picture and the and the sewing machine that I owned myself. I'm like, well, this looks good. I flipped through it and, you know, there's lots of pictures. I'm like, I think I can figure this out. So when I bought all these adorable, cute baby prints and stuff like that, and that was my first experience. And it was a really good experience because Eleanor Burns did a fantastic job explaining how to make a quilt. And she also uses that quilt in a day method, which makes it a lot faster. I was working as director of engineering at a software company at the time, and I didn't have a lot of time. So the fact that it was kind of speedy helped out a lot. So I finished that quilt and I sent it to my best friend and she loved it. She still has it. And now the little girl went to college and she didn't bring her quilt with her, but she still owns her quilt and she keeps it in her room, I think like on a chair or something like that. I thought that was pretty neat. And once I realized how the log cabin method is really fun because you get to pick out like the center color was usually red and then you pick out three dark colors and three light colors so it's not too hard to pick out the colors you just sort of pick three lights and three darks and it always looks beautiful and then you can as the book showed you you can rearrange the blocks into all different forms like they have they have different names for those quilts like field and farrow and feathers and I don't remember all the different names, but there's a lot of different ways you can arrange the blocks to give you a really different look. So after that, I just started churning out these log cabin quilts for everyone I knew. I made some for my mom. I made them for relatives. I made some for myself. Then I ended up having another baby, so I made one for him. It was really my go-to pattern for a really long time. 
So did you ever get to where you can make one in a day? No. <laughs> Not at all. I sort of had it broken down to like cut it all out in a day. You can sew all the blocks in a day if you already cut it out, I think. And then after that, the quilting process, I discovered there was a thing called long arm quilting that you could pay other people to do for you. That was life changing for me because the first one for the baby, I machine quilted it myself and it didn't turn out that great. You know, it turned out kind of lumpy. Then I started sending them to the machine quilter and of course they were fantastic. So I mostly do that now. I just don't have the equipment to quilt them myself. Yeah. Now, whether it's a quilt you made or that you've seen somewhere, do you have a favorite quilt? Well, as I mentioned, I have a favorite block pattern, which is log cabin. It's still my favorite even to this day. But there's a quilt that I really admire, and I would never make it in a million years, but it's amazing. It's, I always appreciate seeing people's interpretation of the Dear Jane quilt the quilt that has something like 1,200 pieces or something like that. And I always fantasize that it would be amazing to make one, but I know that I would never finish it because I get distracted by new projects so easily. I always love admiring other people's Dear Jane quilts. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's good to know our limits, I suppose. <laughs> yes. With quilting and all the tools available to us now, is there a tool that you are so happy you have? Absolutely. My number one favorite tool that I have is my 1953 Singer 301A vintage sewing machine. I love that thing more than anything. And I always joke, if my house was on fire and all the humans were safe, I would run back in for that machine because I love it. I mentioned that I got an engineering degree. I have a mechanical engineering degree, actually. And so I love machines. This thing is a beautiful work of art. It's all aluminum. All the parts are metal. It only weighs 15 pounds and it sews perfectly every single time. I know there's lots of really neat computerized machines out there, but I cannot bring myself to buy one because I just love my 301A. I bought it on eBay actually because it was the sewing machine that my mom had. So I grew up using it. And then when I became an adult, I was like, hey mom, you know that old sewing machine you used to have? I said, can I have it? She said, no. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, what do you mean, no? You don't use it. She wasn't using it anymore. She was using some other like modern sewing machine, but she couldn't give it up for the same reason. So I bought one on eBay when eBay was brand new. I was so excited that I was able to find one. I assume they're getting harder to find, but I guess there's a lot of people that have things in their basements or attics that they don't remember are there. Probably, but you're definitely right. They're getting hard to find as like the whole world knows how eBay works now. And so a lot of times in the past, you used to be able to find stuff that people were getting rid of, but now it's more like people know that they can sell these things. So you can find them if you're willing to pay a lot more for them. I think my machine was not very expensive because I got it in the early days of eBay but I think in more recent times, the price has gone a lot up. But I've been very, very happy with it. And it ran as good as my mom's. And I found this crazy old guy who's a sewing machine repair guy who fixed it when it had problems. So I'm good for now. 
what part of the quilting process do you really love or do you like each step along the way? Well, for me, I think the best part is the piecing, you know, because then you get to see your colors come together and and you can see like a whole block. I usually work in quilts that are based on blocks as opposed to like the big, like modern things. And piecing is the most fun for me. I put together a few blocks, you know, put them up on the design wall, take a look at them. And then, like I was saying, in the case of the log cabin one, you, you try them in different directions and get different looks. So that, to me, is the most rewarding part. Please share your worst quilting experience. Well, I would have to say that my worst quilting experience is one of the things that happens when people find out that you're a quilter is that they want you to fix their old quilts for them. At first, I was like, oh, of course, I'll fix your old quilt for you. And so a family member asked me to fix her son's baby quilt because it had gotten tattered and she wanted to keep it as a keepsake and possibly give it to his child. And I'm like, sure, go ahead, send it to me. She sent it to me and it was basically a box of rags. It was a disaster. It was basically unsavable. And I didn't know what to say. You know, what I should have said was, I'm sorry, this is completely unsavable and sent it back to her. But I didn't because I felt like I had promised. So it was really difficult to save any part of that thing. What I ended up doing was I cut it in half because one half was just completely ruined. And the other half was mostly ruined, but sort of salvageable. So I cut it in half and then I used pieces from the throwaway half to patch the holes in the remaining half. And I managed to sort of cobble together half of a quilt. And I was actually really embarrassed by this because I was thinking she's going to be so disappointed. She's going to be mad that I cut it up. And after I cut it up, I was thinking I should not have even cut it. I should have just sent it back and said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. But once I cut it, I was committed. So I did the best I could. I sent it back to her and she opened the box up and she told me later that she started crying because it was so beautiful. <laughs> and she said she loved it. Even though I thought it was a disaster, I guess her expectations were low. So she was happy that it basically looked like a quilt again. and It didn't have any stuffing hanging out and all the patches there was a lot of patches, but I tried to like match the prints up to where the patches were. And she said it was really beautiful. And now she had something to, to hold on to until her son became a father. So I don't know if she ever gave it to him, but she was happy. And after that, I vowed that I would never fix someone's quilt again. And people have asked me just recently, a friend of mine saw my by the yard comp and said, oh, I didn't know you were a quilter. You know, I have this old quilt that has a few holes and I'm wondering if you can fix it. And I said, thanks for thinking of me, but absolutely no. <laughs> so that's just not something I can do. That's not in my wheelhouse either. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I think you should just fold it up and keep it as a keepsake, but don't try to save it. There are so many things that we can do with our time. But as quilters, we keep coming back to our quilts. Why do you think you quilt rather than spending your time doing other things? Well, I think that quilting is very appealing because I'm a maker. You know, I've always been a maker. You know, I grew up in that household where people made everything. 
I think that is very rewarding to go to the fabric shop and see all these beautiful colors. And what I do is I go there. I don't have an idea in mind. I just look at the fabric that's there and you get ideas like, oh, this will look really great as a butterfly or a dragon or, you know, whatever. You get ideas from the fabric. And then when you get home, you get to implement those ideas in the fabric. And quilting is relatively easy. You know, so quilting is a lot easier than stained glass. Stained glass is wicked hard. You got to cut it. You got to grind it. You get cuts on your fingers. And it's very difficult. But I've been sewing since I was five. So sewing is super easy to me. So it's a way to realize your vision about what fabric could look like. And so I think that's what keeps me coming back time and time again, even though I have more quilts than I could ever use. You know, you're always going to make more. Because you have new ideas and you want to see what they're going to look like. So that brings us to who do you make your quilts for? Mostly I make my quilts for my family members. I always make a baby quilt for anyone in the family. Now my kids are bigger, so I want to think about like bigger quilts for their rooms, like their dorm rooms and things like that. And then also I was developing sewing patterns for a while there and I got into making quilting patterns. But still, I was keeping a lot with like the little kid theme and the baby theme, like things that are cute and things that are cartoony, things that have eyes, the cute eyes. So I'd say that the most quilting that I do was to support my quilting pattern design sort of side hustle. I was doing that for a while before I started the cartoon. And now I'm definitely spending more time on the cartoon than I am on patterns, but I still do patterns. Well, the patterns you made are still available, right? Yes. So my patterns are available at SoFun.com. It's like the pun, S-E-W-F-U-N, SoFun. They're mostly baby stuff, baby quilts, and then like cute tote bags with little cartoon faces on them. You know, I have a whole line of Halloween bags that have cute Halloween faces on, but they're all made from the two and a half inch strips. So again, that's the influence of Eleanor Burns. Like she started me out with this two and a half inch strip thing, and I just kept going with it. And then I did some Christmas pillows and some other tote bags and things. So there's a lot of like cute faces made out of the two and a half inch strips. That's really fun for me because it's kind of like cartooning and quilting together. I can see that. Do you have a special quilting project going on right now? Well, actually, I just finished a really cute project. And that is a girl from my knitting group. We were throwing her a baby shower. And so, of course, she was going to get a lot of knitted gifts, right? I wanted to do something neat for the decorations because we were going to be outside in this gazebo kind of porch thing. And so I made this cute fabric banner. It was 22 feet long, like little triangles with all the little things that she liked. She liked purple and little hearts and cats and flowers and very cute for like a baby. So I made this enormous fabric banner. It was adorable. And then when the party was over, I gave it to her. I said, you can... Use it for the baby's room. You could turn it into little bibs. I don't know, whatever you want. So that's something I just finished. And now that that's done, there's some more bag patterns that I've been wanting to do for so fun. I had all the Halloween ones and the Christmas ones. And I have this collection of forest animal ones that I'm working on next, like bear and a fox, things like that. And then some the more unusual animals, like there's a sloth and a koala. The reason I like these projects is because it's basically like one big block. It's a little tote bag. There's a small kid size one and a larger adult size one for like books or magazines. The reason why I like these projects is 
because it's quilting still, but you only make one big panel. You know, it's like 16 by 16 inches, and it's a cute animal face. So that way, if you like quilting, it's very satisfying. You get to put together a cute block, but you don't have to make 50 of them. So it's sort of a, an intermediate quilting project that you can do in like a couple of evenings. So I'm hoping to get those out soon. Got a little bit behind this summer because it was such a busy summer, but I'm hoping to get those out in the fall time frame for so fun. That will be great to look forward to. Share a quilting tip. Well, there's a lot of good quilting tips out there, but I'm going to say that the best quilting tip is to keep your desk clean. Keep your bench or your desk clean. When you're working, it gets all piled up with little pieces that you cut off and blocks that you finish and stuff like that. And when you get tired, the temptation is to just leave it and then go take a break. But then the next time you want to work, it's a mess and you have to spend a half an hour cleaning before you can get to work. So even though people that know me are going to laugh when I say my tip is keep your desk clean, I really think it is the best tip. So that like when the urge to strike, not even the urge to strike, but when you have time to quilt, because sometimes you have to carve out those little bits and pieces during the day. When you have time, you can just go down there and do it. So that's my quilting tip. That's a good one. Just before I was waiting to get on this call with you. I was able to run in there and do like two seams. Well, there you go. I'm actually a blogger for CNT Publishing, which is a publisher of quilting how-to books and books about fabric and sewing and all that stuff. And I blog for them every other Wednesday. I give them one of my comics and I always give them an article that goes with the comic. And so I have a lot of tips and tricks like that because a lot of People ask me, like, how can I make more time or how can I get more done and things like that. And like a lot of people, they're busy. You know, they have jobs, they have kids, they have to cook and clean and all that stuff and go to work. You know, where are you going to find time for an time intensive hobby like quilting? And so I try to do articles here and there about how to improve your quilting time. That's one of them. And the other one that I promote a lot is to use those plastic bins, you know, those storage bins. Put everything for your quilt in that bin. So you have an entire box that is just that project. And so if you want to put it aside, like, for example, I had to put aside what I was currently working on to make the baby banner for the baby shower, right? So you can just put everything aside in that bucket, take out the other bucket that has your other projects in it. So the bucket-based project storage system, it works surprisingly well. Yeah, so many people don't have the space to be able to spread everything out and leave it there if another project comes about. That's true. I don't have the space either. We have a small house, so I have to figure out ways to cram a lot into a small space. Yeah. Can you tell us about how you went from having quilting as a hobby and you decided to have it as a business? Well, so that came about when my son was born. I had him when I was 40. So I was a lot older. I had two daughters before and I was taking time off from work because I was 40 and I was pregnant and (laughs) I was done with working. And it just so happened that my company experienced a round of layoffs right at that exact time. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to be on fire to go back to work because pregnant and 40 and unemployed, I'm going to do something else with my time. 
And so that's around the time that I got really into all these sewing websites and all these sewing blogs. And I was following like a ton of blogs and I was thinking, you know, I can make a sewing pattern. That would be cool. I just decided to just try it out. And so my first pattern for Sew Fun was this little baby ball. It was like a little 3D ball. A lot of times people refer to it as the Amish puzzle ball. It's like these little pie wedges that you sew together, 12 of them, and it makes this little 3D ball. And so I did that as my prototype pattern. Like, I'll make a pattern with this one thing, and we'll see, you know, if it works. I had the baby, and so I hadn't published the pattern yet, and the baby was born. And so I was working on that while taking care of the newborn. And so it was kind of challenging. You didn't get to work very long. You could work on it for like five minutes, and then the baby needed you for two hours. So it was slow. But I eventually put out this pattern and then I quickly made another one about like a cute little diaper bag for the baby. And then I was reading about, oh, you know, there's such thing as these independent pattern publishers, the people that you met on the Facebook group. And I'm like, well, I could sell these. I was first going to just sell them online. And then I realized, like, wait, you can sell these in quilt stores? That's amazing. So I taught myself everything I needed to know about printing and all that stuff. Unfortunately, because of my cartooning background, I already knew how to use all the graphics design software to build the pictures and everything, support the pattern. I ended up partnering with a company that's now defunct that exclusively sold baby sewing patterns, and the patterns took off. I only had two when I launched my sewing, sewfun.com business, and they took off. It was just amazing. That's what sort of launched that, and then I did some baby quilts on top of that and more bags and, and things like that. That's kind of how SoFun got started. And how much thought did you put into coming up with the name SoFun? Well, I actually put away a lot of thought into it. So I was a software developer, so I was fairly savvy about domain name registration and things like that and like SEO, search engine optimization, stuff like that. And so I always liked things that or double meeting or puns or something like that. And so fun is like a cute pun. And it was very short. It was only six letters, which is better for being found online. There's all kinds of benefits to having a short domain. People remember it and stuff like that. And so I actually bought it off of somebody. It was not available. I bought it off a sewing machine and vacuum repair company that went out of business. And then they put their domain up for sale for relatively cheap. There was other things that I wanted and I kept searching for them and they were taken and things like that. And I was really consumed by the idea of, you know, I needed something that was short, but instantly let you know it was about sewing. And then because my patterns were like cute and baby themed and there was like toys and balls and things like that, I was like, so fun. There you go. Sewing toys, you know, sewing things for kids. So I thought it was a perfect fit. So I grabbed it up. There's a very long and hilarious story about what happened after that, which the summary is tried to trademark my brand after I bought the domain and started publishing product under that name. And I was immediately sued by a sewing machine manufacturer who shall remain nameless. And I was very upset because, you know, I put all this effort into I bought the domain. I had the patterns printed and all this stuff. And getting a trademark is a very lengthy process. And there's a part where you publish your intentions, like I'm about to trademark this name. They call it publishing for opposition. And then other people, if they see it and they think that you're infringing on them, then they can stop you from getting the trademark. So this big sewing machine company did that. And they said, you can't use that. We're already using it. 
And my response was, well, you didn't register it. So, you know, whatever. That's not how the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office works. What happens is you have to go to court. And I was like, great. You know, I can't afford to go to court. This is ridiculous. So long story short, I did go to court. I did hire a lawyer, but no one would take my case because they said it was unwinnable. I finally found a lawyer in California who would do it. But he said, well, if you want me to come to the deposition, you have to pay me my travel and my hotel. And I'm like, well, I can't afford all that. So he just gave me advice like, okay, well, you're going to have to go alone. And here's my advice. Go do it. So I had to be deposed alone with this big sewing machine company in the room. And they brought like six people and I'm there all by myself. And I was extremely prepared with all the things that I had to do to win, which was showing prior use of the mark and show when I started using it in trade and all this kind of stuff. And I could show what they call superior rights because I had started using it first. And the law says who's ever using it first in commerce belongs to them. Right before we went to the deposition, the company offered to let me share the mark with them. Like, okay, we can both use it, but you have to let us have it too. And I was like, no, all or nothing. (laughs) You know, it's all mine or all yours, but I'm not going to share it. So after the deposition, they said, okay, thank you for your time. And I left and I didn't know what to do. I'm like walking home by myself, wondering how it went. And then my lawyer called me 20 minutes later. And I'm like, what happened? What happened? He said, they dropped their opposition. The mark is yours. I'm like, what do you mean it's mine? Like I have to share it with them? He says, no, it's all yours. And he goes, you did such a good job in the deposition that you completely bowled them over and you won. So that was probably the biggest victory in my business life ever. And I've owned the mark ever since. So I make sure that I maintain it and do all the right things to keep it in my possession. So anyways, that is a story for the little guy. If ever you're a little business out there and you're feeling like a big guy is trying to beat you up, you can win as a little guy. Wow. Yeah. After getting a lawyer and going through all that you did, there's no way you were going to, at that point, say, sure, we'll share it. (laughs) Right. Because I figured they would just take over. Yeah. So anyways, that's fun. I subscribed to another podcast, which is really interesting, called Just Want a Quilt. It's run by a professor, Elizabeth Townsend Garg, who is a professor at Tulane University. She talks about a lot of legal issues related to copyright and things like that. So I shared my story on her podcast one time. I guess that just shows you that there's a lot of things that when I first started that I wasn't aware of. Like I wasn't aware of trademark, copyright and all that stuff. I've learned a lot about that since then. It's just like any other business. You think about it from the crafting angle and that's all you really want to think about. But you have to think about all the other aspects of it, too. If you want to be profitable and not get sued, things like that. Yeah, so many details. And I think you already touched on how you named your cartoon by the yard. I did. I started the cartoon because I thought it would be a fun way to tell the story about myself and my train guy and our crazy hobbies. But I mentioned before, when I named Sofa and I wanted something that was cute, that was like a pun or like a double meaning. And by the yard is a double meaning because it's by the yard, like by the yard of fabric. And then by the yard, meaning like down by the train yard. I thought that was a fun way to sort of bring the two hobbies together. It definitely fits. So part of your cartoons, you've been making calendars for each year. When did that begin? The calendar actually started the very first year. 
Uh, I started the comic in 2019. And so my first calendar was the 2020 calendar. Nobody knew 2020 was going to be such a big year, but uh, back then it was just the next year that was coming up. And so I'd been drawing the comics for not very long, for only about six months. And I was thinking, well, I'm sharing the cartoons online. I'd really like a way to share like paper versions of the cartoons. Because remember, I'd been printing all these sewing patterns in both paper and digital formats. I'd been producing those patterns since 2009. So that was like 10 years. And I know that with patterns, you can reach some people with digital patterns, but there's still a lot of people that prefer those paper ones. And I was thinking, you know, there's a lot of people that aren't online that like quilting that I could reach some other way. And so I was like, what can I do? I really wanted to do a book, but I didn't have enough comics yet. I'm like, well, you know, what would be really cool is a calendar because you could do like a really big cartoons. It'd be wall sized. And so that was a really crazy story, too. I put together the best of whatever I had so far. I only had like six months worth of comics. So I I picked the best ones. And again, my experience with all the digital layout tools that I'd been using for designing the patterns and and making comics, I I already had all the skills to put it together. So that was easy, put it all together. And then I was like, well, how am I going to pay for this? This is going to cost me thousands of dollars to print this. And I really don't have thousands of dollars to invest in this right now. But what I did have was contacts with all the quilt pattern distributors. So I pitched them all on this. I'm like, this is in like pre-sales. And I gave them all the pictures and I'm like, are you interested in this? And they said, yes. And I got them all on board. Then I very fortuitously met somebody from the fabric industry and he was a big fan of the comics. And I said, well, would you mind mentioning it on your Facebook page? And so I had the calendars all done digitally, but they didn't exist in paper. I had them all in pre-order status on my website. And he mentioned it on his website. And I sold 3,000 calendars in like four days to, to quilt shops because he was a fabric manufacturer. So all of his Facebook fans were quilt shops, not individuals. So I sold dozens and dozens and dozens just on those first three days. Then I had all the money that I needed. I had more money than I needed to print it. So I printed it, shipped them all off to the quilt shop, shipped all the pre-orders off to the distributors, and we were in business in a matter of a week. I think the thing that's important about that story is just being like really prepared, having everything already built and ready to go, and just having your finger over the, the print button to send it to my printer. And of course, I already had all the infrastructure that I needed. I already had the printer that was in my local hometown who could print it because he was already printing my patterns. And so I just said, hey, I have a new project for you. (laughs) So I had a lot of infrastructure already in place from the sewing patterns. It was a big hit. We sold out. So we had to reorder. My husband talked me into ordering more than I wanted. He talked me into ordering much more than I wanted. I'm like, no, we're never going to sell that. And he insisted on it. Since we did well with the pre-sales, I'm like, all right, I'll get the amount that you said, but I think that's way too many. And we ended up selling out the first couple of months. So that was fun. So we've done it every year since. And Checker Distributors is a big distributor to the quilting industry. They sell patterns and notions and fabric and all that stuff. It's been a top 10 item in their gift category. And we've had a very vigorous following online selling to individuals because people read the comic on Facebook or on the CNT publishing group that I blog on. It's been 
really fun. I think the most fun part of it is just hearing from other quilters. You know, people write to me, email me. They tell me that they like the comics, but then they always tell me about something about themselves. And I always try to ask, like, tell me about your quilts. You know, what are you working on? So it's a really neat way to stay engaged with the quilting community at large. Mm -hmm. That was so amazing that your local publisher was able to do that large of a run for you. My local printer, he was already pretty big. They print books and they basically printed a lot of corporate stuff, corporate advertising stuff, things where they need thousands and thousands of units. So he didn't even flinch when I told him how many that I needed because they already did this kind of thing. So it, it wasn't like a, a Sir Speedy or a Alpha Copies or whatever. This was like a commercial printer. So they were used to working with big businesses and the volume wasn't a problem for him. Wow. Your cartoon was able to get into magazines or newspapers. What kind of connections did you have for that? I didn't have any. Just cold called people. I, I didn't know anybody at all. And uh, <laughs> so I just cold called people. I got into the Country Register, which is a collection of newspapers. There's like one per state in the United States. And then there's several issues in Canada. And so it's like a collection of newspapers that they're all under the same parent umbrella, but they all have individual editors. So I just approached the editor for the Massachusetts slash Rhode Island slash Connecticut version of the country register. And I approached her and I, I was just thinking, I'm just going to go with that. It's the New England version. I pitched my comic to her. I said, this is a comic about quilting and it's for people who love quilts, for people who do quilting and people who like the fiber arts. It's a newspaper for crafters, so their readers are knitters, quilters, antique people, rug hookers, you name it, those types of people. And she loved it, and she said, well, you know, we share content with the other papers in the other parts of the country. And I was like, wow, that's great, so go ahead, share it. And so I managed to get into quite a few of their papers just from knowing that first editor, and she was kind enough to share the work. And then uh, in terms of the CNT publishing blog, Again, total cold call. Hey, I draw a comic about quilting. Are you interested? Same thing with the model railroading magazine. Same thing. Just email the editor. Hi, here's some comics about model railroading. So I guess I would say my advice to other people that want to sell a quilting related product is just cold call people. Because the worst thing that can happen is they say no. People have said no. And then it has led to other things, you know, like, I met the guy who founded Quilt Folk magazine. It's a fascinating story. It's an amazing publication. If you guys haven't read it, you've got to read it. It's a beautiful, big, thick, like coffee table book, but it's a magazine with no ads. All it is is profiles of quilters. And they're not necessarily famous or anything, just quilters that he meets in the world. And so I originally pitched my comic to him and he said, no, it's not a fit for our magazine because it's the cartoony style doesn't really suit us. But would definitely like to interview you as a material for the magazine. And by then I had moved to Rhode Island and they hadn't done the Rhode Island issue yet. So back in January, I think it's issue 23 of Quilt Folk. This big write up about by the yard and some cute pictures and stuff. So uh, you just never know who you're going to meet in the world. So be nice to everyone and, and try. And even if they say no, just... Stay friends with them because it was a solid four years later after I first met him that he asked me to be in the Rhode Island issue. 
It took him that long to get to your state, right? Yeah, because that's it. He wasn't going to do it until we got to Rhode Island. But the point is, he didn't forget me. He remembered the conversation we had, and he remembered me sharing my portfolio with him by email. So he must have liked it because he remembered when it was time to do Rhode Island, like, don't forget to call that cartoon girl. Actually, I originally pitched him when I still lived in Massachusetts, but they hadn't done Western Mass, which is where I was living. And then it just was very lucky that I moved to a state that they also hadn't done yet because their publication goes by state. They interview artists on a state-by-state basis and they're working their way through the country. So it was just dumb luck that I moved to a state that they hadn't done yet and dumb luck that he remembered me. But it would have never happened if he hadn't reached out to begin with. That's right. And all I did was just send an email to the address on their website. I'm going to jump over to your patterns for a minute. Do you remember putting that first pattern out and someone bought it? How exciting was that? I do remember that. My first pattern, I put it on Etsy. And the first person that bought my pattern was a relative. And I was like, thanks, but, you know, come on, I would have given you a free one. But at first, I was not happy about that. But uh, and I was like, okay, that's all right. And then it was like a few days later, someone who wasn't a relative bought a pattern. It was the little puzzle ball. And that was really fun. And then, again, the only way I ever got anywhere with those patterns was by cold calling people. Because back then, I did not know all the buyers for all the distributors. I didn't know anybody. So I just started cold calling people. And I found that website where the lady sold mostly the baby patterns. And again, just cold called her. And I said, hey, I've got this pattern. At the time, it was one pattern before I'd even made the baby bag one, just one. And she said, all right, I'll buy 50. And I said, 50? Oh, my God. I was just unbelievably excited. I'm like, absolutely. I'll mail them right away. And back then, I didn't have a printer. I was printing them at Staples. Printing them at Staples is not cheap because they charge a lot per page. So I had to go and print 50, and then I folded them all up, and I shipped them off. And this is no joke. This is 100% true. Two days later, she emailed me, and she said, well, your baby ball pattern went really well, so I think I'd like to order some more. This time I want 2,000. <laughs> and I was like, 2,000? Sure. <laughs> I said, yes, right? And I was thinking, there's no way I can print 2,000 of these at Staples because, number one, the quality of printing isn't very good. And number two, folding all of those things, it would never work. So it was a mad scramble to find a printer. And like I said, I'm using the same guy now that I used back then. And so I found him just literally by calling up on the phone, like all the commercial printers that were in my area. And almost all of them hung up on me and they said, we don't do that. And, you know, they're basically saying, you know, your project is stupid to me. I don't care about it. When I finally got to this guy, his name is Andrew, and I explained the project to him, he goes, well, why don't you come in and show me what you want? And so I came in with one of my staples one that was printed and I explained to him how it had to be a certain size and it had to be folded down to a certain size. So it would, the standard quilting pattern is like a half of a sheet, you know, a half of eight and a half by 11 sheet. And I go, it has to fit in this little Ziploc baggie. And I explained all this stuff to him. And it has to have this big sheet on the inside that you can unfold, that's the pieces that you cut out. And he just looked at me and go, okay. And he goes, I'll send you a quote later today. And so he did. And the quote was much cheaper, of course, than I was paying at Staples. 
And he was going to fold it. They had machines that will fold it for you. And because I folded the first 50 by hand, I was thinking trying to fold 2,000 by hand would kill me. And the, the biggest problem was that I wouldn't be able to get it to the customer in time because I had promised her that I'd get them to her by the end of the week or some ridiculously fast delivery time. Andrew delivered. It was beautiful. His printing was spectacular. The folding was precise. And I said, I'm never using anyone but you. That was very, very exciting. Like, if you had told me that that was going to happen, I never would have believed you. And the same thing with the calendars. If you had told me that you were going to be able to make enough money to pay for your whole print run in the first three or four days, again, I would not have believed you. So the takeaway to all the sewing entrepreneurs out there is whatever crazy idea you have, just do it because it'll work. I'm an engineer, so I tend to talk myself out of things. Like I, I tend to overanalyze things, you know, like, well, that's not going to work because of all these things. I don't know what was different about that. I think it's because I just really, really wanted it to work. I didn't want to go back to work in corporate America. I wanted to make my sewing pattern business successful. So I just took a blind leap of faith and I just made it happen. That was fun. And I enjoy telling people that story because I hope that it's motivating to other people who have a neat idea and maybe just don't have enough belief in it yet. You got to believe in your own thing. And if you do, it will work. That's a great story. Thank you so much for sharing it. You're welcome. Jennifer, is there anything else that you wanted to share about your businesses? The real reason why I wanted to be on here today is obviously I want to share my work with people. I want them to take a look at my patterns. I want them to enjoy the comic and things like that. I guess the only thing I would want to share with people is, is sort of just reiterating my previous point is that there are a lot of ways that your art can manifest itself. You can be a designer, you can be a fabric designer, you can sew quilts, you can be a long armor, you can do all kinds of things. There's like so many interesting ways to participate in the quilting community. And whatever you're interested in, there's definitely other people out there that are interested in it too. So I just encourage you to pursue whatever your personal passion is and, and share that gift with the world because that's been the most rewarding part for me is like hearing from other people and getting to talk to people like you and just getting stuff out in the world for other people to look at and to enjoy. That's really the most fun for me. So if you have a similar passion, I strongly encourage you to throw everything you got at it because it really can be fun. Sure can be. And share where we can find your businesses. Well, my sewing patterns are available at sewfun.com. That's S-E-W-F-U-N.com. And my comics are all, and my calendars and my other art. I also have greeting cards, coffee mugs, gift tags, bookmarks, you know, all kinds of fun, like printed things with the comics on them are all available at bytheyardcomics.com. And you can read my articles from... CNT Publishing, I also publish them there. You can see the weekly comic and then all the merch and everything. I have a little store there that you can click over to. And of course, Facebook, it's By The Yard Comics is my hashtag. And Instagram, my hashtag is By The Yard Comics. So all one word, By The Yard Comics. will get you to all of those places. Great. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for spending this time with me. This was so much fun to get to know you. 
Well, thank you so much, Paula, for having me. I really enjoyed talking about quilting and comics, and I can't wait to hear the final podcast. Thank you, and bye. Bye-bye. You can find more stories on aquilterslife.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast player so each episode will be downloaded automatically. Also, I want to hear about you and your wonderful quilts. Please contact me, Paula Chamberlain, through the website to set up an interview. And as always, thanks for listening. Thank you.